Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. This is Mike Fader, and this is The Turning Point. Today we're going to talk about uh, what happened in Charlottesville and uh, everything around that, everything that's come out of it, maybe what caused it, maybe how to deal with it, if we could even come up with answers. Uh, We have a guest today uh, who has written a very interesting article. Actually, it was back in uh, the end of May in USA Today. My guest is Tom Crottenmaker. I'm sorry, Crottenmaker. Am I pronouncing that right now? Good morning. Yeah, perfect. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Uh, Tom Crottenmaker, and he is an award-winning writer specializing in religion in public life. In addition to writing columns for USA Today, he is the author of three books, including most recently the 216 release, Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower, 
which is currently a finalist for the Religion News Association's Book of the Year. And um, it's hard to know. There is so much going on here, and it and there are so many roots to this evil flower and so many blossoms to deal with that are not so yeah. pleasant either. It is difficult to know where to start. I mean, in your article, um, you were writing about... Um, you began writing about the, the New Orleans Confederate monuments all being gone, including the likeness of Robert E. Lee. Uh, and it's amidst, amid a debate over whether they represented Southern heritage, whatever that is, or were symbols of slavery and oppression of blacks. Maybe that's a rhetorical question. I don't know. So maybe we could just have, I mean, I could go over the whole thing point by point, but maybe we could just plunge into it. I mean... One question is, uh, it'll pop up sometime in the conversation, is Trump a cause or a symptom, you know? And um, Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, among other things. And then uh, all this stuff about the uh, <clears throat> alt-right and um, white nationalists. And do these statues, what do these statues represent? Do they need to be there? Uh, do we really, are we familiar with our history? Is, it, is there really a Southern heritage or a Southern way of life that has to be preserved or are we just talking about slavery here? I mean, there are many questions. Definitely. Well, what a week to be having this conversation. Yeah. I want to thank you for having me on, Mike. I really appreciate it. It's an important issue to discuss. And it's unbelievable timing. So much has been happening this week. <laughs> we all know about what happened in uh, Charlottesville last Friday and Saturday. And um, this week, there's news all over the place about different cities taking down Confederate monuments. Yeah, so the Baltimore. situation was already yeah. hot, and then the, and then Donald Trump weighs in and fans the flames, and so it's gone from hot to hotter, thanks to the way he jumped in. But um, on a hopeful note, it seems to me like maybe um, his role in this, and maybe the things that happened in Charlottesville are backfiring, and having the opposite effect from what they intended. It seems to be accelerating the recognition of the evil of this white supremacy and the horrifying nature of these statues and the, de the determination by people to get rid of them. So it's, um, it's fascinating. Yeah, you know, so the Southern Heritage thing. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I first of all, piece. let me make a qualification yeah. here. I don't know where you're from, but I am, uh, you know, from New York City forever. And I, I've been down south. Uh, I was married to somebody once <laughs> who came from a Southern state. I've traveled down south. I know people. My best friend when I was a kid was from down south. I don't really know. I don't want to be too black and white about all this. I don't really know what Southern heritage or the lost cause is, you know. Well, I got a lesson in that after my column came out in May. I'll tell you that. I heard from so many people, and uh, most of those people were not pleased with me, suffice it to say. Um, and what in your article did you say that, that, uh, that made them angry? That the Civil War was about slavery, and they apparently think otherwise, and they told me I was a fool for thinking that was the, the reason for the Civil War. I mean, I was, it was mind-boggling for me. I mean, for a second, when I read their emails and their tweets, I entered this alternative universe, and I'm thinking, wow, all this time, I thought the Civil War was about slavery. How could I have been so wrong? Well, and I had you people know, tweeting things like, these were my people, and they, and they fought this brave battle in the Civil War to protect states' rights and the uh, economic construct of the South and to resist this tyranny from the North. Slavery had almost nothing to do with it. Well, I mean, Mike, when I got my senses and stopped reading that and looked at the real history and the broad history, I mean, I came back to my initial 
conviction and impression, which all of us share, at least most of us share, and that is, yes, slavery was what the Civil War was about, and there's no denying that. But there are people in our country, mainly in the South, who very strongly identify with aspects of the Confederacy, and they fiercely resist that it was about slavery, and they fiercely resist that there's anything wrong with having these monuments all over the place in the South. Well, you know, um, to be fair, I mean, I've uh, always considered myself at least an amateur student of history. I mean, things are never really black and white. I mean, there are gray areas. I mean, the uh, I think this the, the Civil War was about slavery more for the South than it was for the North. You know, I mean, in the North, people weren't too crazy about black people either. There were draft riots in, in New York City. Uh, people didn't want a lot of people in parts of the North had no desire to go to war over um, black people. You know, there was... Well, that's a fair point. And Lincoln know. himself, his rhetoric changed over the course of the Civil War. Um, his, the degree to which he was emphasizing the need to overcome slavery, the degree to which he emphasized emancipation, that um, changed and strengthened over mm -hmm. the course of the war. Mm -hmm. But it was definitely what Lincoln was about at the end of the war. And he, um, he made it about that for the North as well, and for the Union as well. And it was, a uh, I mean, degree. I think for the North, um, it really was, um, as far as it, it was called a rebellion, and it was a rebellion. It was um, a rebellion against the United States of America, literally the United States of America. I mean, so the war from the North was to preserve the Union, the United States of America. And in the South, I think it was far more about slavery. And that's maybe that gets to one of the issues. And that they would like to, pref they, like, as you mentioned, they would prefer not to think that that's what it was about. You know, they, they can add some nobility to it. They can say states' rights. It was a little bit about all of these things. I don't know about the nobility. That's, to me, that's a lot of crap, you know. And there's this whole mythology. And as you write about the statue of General Lee being like the last one to go in New Orleans, there's a lot about General Lee, which represents the entire mythology of the South and these statues, because he is considered way into the 20th century until people started really looking into his life a little bit more as a great gentleman, as a nobleman, as a, that's true, as even a man who didn't like slavery and on and on and on. But there are articles like a recent one in The Atlantic and a couple of other articles in their history books quoted that this man um, had a very, uh, a very racist attitude towards blacks. He was a slave owner by virtue of his wife. When his wife died, uh, right before the Civil War, a couple of years before the Civil War, he took over, um, he was forced to sort of interrupt his army career, which was a very brilliant one, uh, graduated from West Point and was being promoted and promoted. He took over the management of the uh, plantation with the slaves, um, his wife's plant, you know, his wife's father's plantation. And he turned out to be a pretty vicious slave owner in many, many ways. And people, you know, revere him for all these things that he doesn't deserve. Yeah, there's a lot of mythology um, around him. And I was sort of buying into that to some degree. Oh, I degree, was too. But I I've was seen too. several articles this very week that very effectively, um, incredibly debunk that myth of the nobility of, of Robert E. Lee. Yeah, I mean, I bought into it, too. I mean, uh, there was this wonderful uh, television movie based on the Killer Angels, the book by Michael Shara called... Oh, yeah, Get I read that novel. Yeah, wonderful novel. And then there's Gettysburg. The, they had a wonderful movie out of this TV movie. And in that movie, uh, then you see the mythology. I mean, basically, they were concentrating more on the southern side with sympathy, in a way. And the northerners were sort of like 
cold and uh, you know they they were uh, do- a dominating force and the Southerners were representing. There was all this sentimentality and Lee being That's a good a, word, you know, being a great gentleman and uh, people talking about uh, the home fires of the South and defending the South. But um, you know, really, uh, so I I always bought into it. I didn't know any better until I start reading about it. Yeah, I'm with you. Well, I've been thinking about these things off and on for most of my adult life, and I have had the experience of um, visiting some of these places that are now being discussed this week. I was uh, in Richmond and saw Monument Row hmm. a couple of decades ago. Um, I was stunned by it. It was intimidating. It was huge and overwhelming. That has definitely stayed in my uh, memory. And then, as fate would have it, I was in Charlottesville for the Virginia Festival of Books back in March, March of this year. And I'm walking along this uh, really cool pedestrian area and thinking, yeah, this is a great city, you know, progressive Charlottesville, blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly I come upon this little park, and there's this huge statue of Robert E. Lee, and I was really surprised. Uh, well, and I mean, that, that got me thinking about it. And, um, and then this summer, too, I was in Charleston for a different event, and I saw the, saw the monuments there. And um, you mentioned Gettysburg, and um, I happen to have had the privilege of spending a day there and touring the battlefields, oh. and I've read the Killer Angels. I've seen the, I've seen North and South, you know, the miniseries on TV. Yeah, and I've always puzzled over this glorification of the Confederacy, and I've asked myself many times, why is it okay to glorify this force that promoted and defended slavery and that was an enemy of the United States? Well, why? So you ask the question. Do you have an answer for that? I mean, is it a simple answer or what? Well, a partial answer, and this uh, came about as I did research for the column back in May. But people need to realize that these um, monuments, and um, I read that there's over 700 of them that are still left, mm-hmm. mainly in the South, but not only in the South. But these did not go up right after the Civil War. These went up, by and large, during um, the Jim Crow era. And I see them as sort of a reassertion of um, white supremacy mm-hmm. and part and parcel with a project to try to put African Americans, quote, back in their place. The South shall and rise they're again. Intimidating. <laughs> they're intimidating from that standpoint. Yeah. I've tried to put myself in the, in the shoes of um, a young African American growing up now and seeing these things in their city. And um, the mayor of New Orleans riffed on this when he gave that eloquent speech back in the spring. But what effect would it have on you if you were a young African-American and you're gazing up at these statues? And there's no context saying that, um, you know, the person depicted here, whether it's Stonewall Jackson or Robert E. Lee or Jefferson Davis, no context saying that they were fighting for slavery. They're being treated as pure heroes. You know, that would be so demeaning, I would think, if you were an African-American youth. And it would be confusing if you were a white youth and trying to figure all this stuff out. Absolutely. I mean, you would have a perverted, uh, which people have had for, uh, you know, decades and decades for, you know, more than 100, maybe 150 years since the Civil War, a perverted idea of history. And this is a big point that you make in the article that you wrote for USA Today, is the idea of context, you know, context and explanation. Uh, Explanation, right. And um, there are places, you said you've been to places in the world where you feel like they've handled this the right way. Maybe you could talk Definitely. about that. Definitely. Um, I visited the uh, Dachau concentration camp memorial when I was uh, an undergraduate a long time ago. Um, definitely um, a moving and disturbing experience. 
something that stayed with me. It's sort of been seared in my memory. And it's contextualized. I mean, so the idea that we hear from um, defenders of the Civil War monuments and the Confederate monuments is that they're preserving history. Well, fine. How do you preserve history most effectively? It's not through these heroic monuments, I'll tell you that. But at Dachau, it's a horrible, horrible uh, period of history, and they preserved it, and they preserved it well. They haven't tried to erase it, but they've not done anything to glorify it, for God's sake. And there's all sorts of material there that tells the story about it. And then what really stands out in my memory is the big sign that you see. You can't miss it. And it says, Nie wieder. And for people who know German, you know what that means. Never again. Hmm. And, but what sticks out in my mind just as much as when I visited the um, Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum in Japan. And this was more recently, just about maybe eight years ago. And that's really amazing what they do there. I mean, if you just thought about it uh, with no background, you might think that it would um, sort of glorify the uh, emperor and the Japanese cause leading up to World War II. Well, they don't do that. You might think, oh, they probably wallow in victimization because, Mm -hmm. God knows, there was horrible devastation. But there is no wallowing. I mean, they do have artifacts and different elements in that museum that show how bad the devastation was, but there's no wallowing. And they tell the whole story of what went on the previous 20 years leading up to the dropping of the um, atomic bomb. And that museum looks candidly at Japanese militarism and aggression leading up to the war. So there's lots of context. And it complicates what happened on that horrible day when the bomb was dropped. And, you know, I thought that was well done. And what also stands out in my memory, Mike, is that the day that my wife and I were there, there were tons of Japanese school kids who were there. Hmm. So here we are going through this exhibit with all these Japanese kids. And a few times I thought, how come they're not yelling at at me and my wife? And, you know, there was none of that. Right. Very well done memorial. So those two memorials, preservation of history. Those two memorials got it right. The 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 way you're looking at the way things, maybe the way history, or I mean, if the, if we need to have such statues, uh, and there are statues of everybody everywhere. There are statues of northern figures in the Civil War. Two blocks from where I live, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, is mm-hmm. uh, an equestrian statue built in the 1890s, around 1900, of uh, a Union general. There are statues of Union generals all over the place. Although, interestingly enough, the real hero at, um, at Gettysburg, at the Battle of Gettysburg, was a man named Joshua Chamberlain. Um, ah. Right. Who was... Yeah, a name I'm familiar with because of you know, reading a few of those books, which apparently you've read, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, and it's, a, it's a, a thrilling incident. And in fact, Joshua Chamberlain was an extremely... I can't go into the details of his whole life, but an extremely interesting man. He won the Medal of Honor twice in the Civil War was severely wounded at one point and got over and won the Medal of Honor two times. He was the one who basically saved the Union uh, because Gettysburg was so close to Washington, D.C., and, uh, and, and Lee's army, uh, if, if Lee had won at Gettysburg, he would have uh, very effectively threatened and may, not, may have even been close to invading a fairly unprotected Washington, D.C., and uh, maybe there would have to be a truce. And for all we know, that slavery would have been preserved. That's how close it was. And this man, Joshua Chamberlain, was a colonel of a Maine brigade from Maine. And, Maine, uh, yeah. And he, he defended at Little Round Top, he defended uh, a place where if the, um, if the Confederate troops had made it over there and around, 
they may have won that battle. So, and he's the great hero. Yeah, but are there? Think about that, isn't it? Yeah, he's the guy that should be statues of him everywhere. But I doubt that there are. You know, it's true. And um, one thing I got into in the um, column, and I think it's relevant to our conversation today. So, um, if it is about preserving history, which I think is fine and good, there are better ways to do it with these um, Confederate figures. I mean, maybe they. I'm not saying that the statues should all be demolished, but. Perhaps they could be placed in a museum setting. I believe that's what they're supposed to be doing in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they've finished that process, but that's fine with me. And I say, at the very least, at the very least, say that these statues that you just can't remove for some reason, at the very least, please put some context there. Put some information plaques that explain what it was about and that make it clear that this statue is not here to glorify the Confederacy and the Southern cause in the Civil War. Well, what would they say on such a plaque? I mean, they, in the South especially, let's say there's a private, privately maintained museum, which may wind up the answer to this. That's if people actually just don't pull them down like they have been all over the place and, you know, and just trash them. Uh, Baltimore, uh, actually the other day, the city of Baltimore, which is very much a black city in a lot of ways, although it was part of the South <laughs> during the Civil War, but they overnight from, from around 11.30 one night, it was just the other night, uh, till 5.30 in the morning, pulled down four of the statues that they had there, you know, Confederate statues, and put them in some warehouse someplace. So let's say they were all these statues all over the country, mostly in the South. If they were put in a warehouse, if they were put in a museum, rather, what would the plaques say in the museum? I think they would um, tell the story of slavery, of the creation of the Confederacy, explain what the Confederacy was about and what these men were about, and talk about uh, the circumstances under which these statues were commissioned and erected. Mm. During a time, yeah. Yeah, and ultimately give viewers and visitors enough information to, uh, to form an opinion. But at the very least, make it clear that we are no longer glorifying these statues and these men in an uncritical way, and that we're no longer trying to glorify the Civil War. And you don't have to go into some polemic against the South, but please just lay out history as robustly and as objectively as possible. I say that knowing that there is no purely objective telling Mm -hmm. of history, but there are certain facts that we could probably agree on, agree that they would need to be included in this uh, contextual information. And sure, there would be some squabbling over exactly how to say it and what to include. But come on, you got to make an effort. I mean, it's bound to be better than what we have right now. Well, they definitely should be out of the public squares. Um, And there are people who are claiming it's a free speech issue. I don't mean free speech in terms of, uh, you know, the the, the right of uh, Nazis and, um, and white nationalists to march and to express themselves. That... You know, that's, to me, uh, I'm pretty close to a free speech absolutist, unless there's violence or threats of violence, although there were in this case, because a lot of them brought um, semi-automatic weapons. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot this week, too, and it's definitely related to this conversation about monuments. Uh, Every time I see um, a photo or photos from down there, and I see these guys dressed in full combat, you know, fatigues, with, uh, with carrying heavy weapons, you know, semi-automatic rifles that look like they're in uh, Afghanistan or Iraq or something like that. These are terrifying. There are open carry laws all over the South and out West, and they shouldn't exist either. And this is part of the problem, you know. 
Yeah, I know. It's, um, we know from um, Supreme Court um, jurisprudence that, and I th- I'm sure you and I agree on this, that free speech is given a really wide latitude in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I think that is as it should be. But we also know that um, actions are not protected and violence is not protected. And that is such a gray area when you have people marching who are espousing a violent philosophy that's um, contrary to American values, and when they're heavily armed, I mean, that's just dripping with the prospect of violence, if not actual violence. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really conflicted about the degree to which that is protected by, you know, our very worthy free free speech principles in the United States. I'm frankly um, skeptical about it, even though I consider myself a defender of free speech. Well, I think a lot of these people uh, uh, deliberately or maybe unconsciously because they don't know any better uh, mix up or conflate the Second Amendment and the First Amendment. They think, and it's been actually a lot of courts have agreed with them, unfortunately, that they think that being able to carry uh, a loaded weapon openly, you know, whether it's a, you know, a pistol or whether it's a rifle or an automatic, semi-automatic rifle, uh, they think to be able to carry that, um, and they've been encouraged to think this in a lot of states and maybe even some federal judges, to carry that is the same as having uh, the right to say whatever they want. It's well, not. Well, making a statement, all right, isn't it? Yeah, it is making but, a statement. Um, That's true. But Yeah, uh, but it's, um, I'm, I'm very skeptical about that. And um, since we're on this now, let me um, wax about something uh, that's been bothering me this week. Yeah. I'm really bothered by... Um, the white supremacists and neo-Nazis hiding behind um, First Amendment free speech rights, because I don't think for one minute that they really have a philosophical commitment whatsoever to free speech. Certainly not for African-American people. Or um, Jews or Muslims. And so, yeah. and so in a way, the people who are really profoundly opposed to free speech are benefiting from the free speech rights that we have as Americans. But that's part of the argument always. And I, I you know, I, I spent uh, decades of my uh, radio career on a very left-wing nonprofit uh, radio station in New York City, part of the Pacifica Foundation group of radio stations across the country. And, um, you know, we were, we were very much almost like free speech absolutists. I mean, short of actual libel, you know what I mean, or, uh, you know, actually giving people the details of how to make a bomb on the radio and telling people where to go and who to blow up. I mean, Mm. short of that stuff, we always defended our right for free speech, and we wound up in the Supreme Court at least once about these cases. Um, So I'm, uh, you know, these, the Nazis, uh, you know, people call them neo-Nazis, they're supposed to make a distinction. There's no distinction. Nazis are Nazi. You know, they're carrying... I hear you. <laughs> they're carrying a swastika and a flag, and they're saying, you know, they're making comments about Jews and, uh, you know, if they go and the white race, they're Nazis. So uh, the, the fact that they're marching there, it's um, what happened, it reminds me of what happened, historically speaking, and the ACLU is defending them, although they're really on their heels now, the ACLU. Well, I've been thinking about that a lot this week, and I have a point I want to make about their well, situation, but go, go on. Let me just mention this, and then we'll get to, to your comment. Uh, what happened with the ACLU, and I think this is back now in, uh, could be in the 60s or the 70s, there was this big Nazi, American Nazi Party march in Skokie, Illinois. Yeah, I read a lot about that. Yeah, it was a suburb, I think, a suburb of Chicago. Chicago, right. Where there were a lot of Jews and a lot of Jews Heavily who Jewish had, community, yep. Jews also who had survived the Holocaust, right? And there they are, and the Nazis, of course, choose this place to, to march because who would care where they marched? 
that this is the most provocative way, you know, that they could get attention to themselves, like Trump needs attention. You know, they needed attention. So uh, did I make a, a connection between Trump and the Nazis? I guess I did. Anyhow, they're marching in this community, and the ACLU stepped up and defended their right to march peaceably, right, and express their horrible points of view. Uh, as hurtful and wounding and provocative as it was, I supported that right. But the, what happened with the ACLU, I'll be brief about this because I know you have a comment, is that they lost half their membership after that. Half their membership. Wow. That was too much for people because it was also too close to World War II. So uh, this thing that happened in Charlottesville, the ACLU defending them, um, you know, it just has, uh, it rings. Talk about history. Anyhow, go ahead. So um, I think you might know from our emails, Mike, that um, in addition to being a columnist and a writer, I'm a communications guy, right? Mm-hmm. I'm communications director at Yale Divinity School. big part of my professional life has been communications, PR, media relations. And so I look at things through that lens as well. And I'm employing that lens right now when I'm thinking about the situation the ACLU is in this week. And to be candid, I'm frustrated with the ACLU. Now, on the upside, I'm somebody who's always talking about the value of principle and idealism. I got to give it to them on that score, right? Mm -hmm. They are being principled and they're being idealistic. And what's the point of idealism if you just scrap it whenever the going gets tough? which is the situation they're in this week. So, you know, big ups to them for their principles and consistency. But where I um, am troubled this week is that I don't see them or hear them saying enough to call out the vicious ideology of the Nazis and the white supremacists and to acknowledge the fact that the philosophy of these people is directly contrary to that which the ACLU stands up for. These guys don't, I mean, when I say these guys, I mean the Nazis and the white supremacists. Mm -hmm. supremacists. They don't care about civil rights, and they don't care about free speech rights. And so if I was the PR person at the ACLU, and I'm sure they don't want my unsolicited advice, Mm -hmm. but I would be urging them to speak loudly this week, saying what I just said, how they firmly passionately oppose what these groups are about and the philosophy of these groups. Now, I discussed this with um, one of my colleagues at USA Today in some emails just yesterday, and he pointed out to me that the ACLU does have a program to uh, oppose hate speech and so forth, so we have to acknowledge that and give them credit for that. Mm -hmm. But still, I think that this aspect of the rhetoric this week is too muted. Maybe it's the media's fault, and maybe the ACLU has been saying this and it's not getting through. I don't really know, but... I think that really needs to be said. It needs to be heard loud and clear from them this week. So you think, you think unless it's been covered up by the, tide, the constant tidal wave of news about Possible, this. Possible, yeah. yeah. But uh, they, they're definitely being remiss in, um, in not being much clearer about the denunciation. Yeah, and I'm worried that they appear to be um, tools and fools and that they're uh, being manipulated by these um, hideous Nazis and white supremacists. You know, I don't think they think that, and I, I, I don't think they think they're being manipulated. I think that you said that it's idealistic, you know, to do this, and that's good. You know, you don't throw away your idealism when, you know, uh, idealism when uh, things get rough. But exactly. I think it, but I think when it comes to free speech, and I am glad they're there, because it's not just idealistic, it's also practical. I mean, it's very simple. These things have been mentioned by people... For hundreds of years now, if you don't defend somebody else's right, no matter how awful they are or how uh, abysmal or vile their points of view, then there's no reason why anybody should defend yours. You know, it's true. And that's yep. That's the um, 
That's what's great about what they're doing. My take is that there's more that they can and should say mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this week, and that they should exercise their own free speech rights <laughs> and, you know, directly criticize what these people are about and, you know, and put it in context. Well, the only thing they've done to uh, slightly alter, uh, I mean, they, they really had bombarded, been bombarded by a lot of, uh, a lot of antipathy for sticking up for these people. Well, I understand that, and they understand that too, and I applaud them for it. However, one thing they did today, they made a qualification yesterday or today, speaking, uh, speaking of PR and communications, uh, whoever it is that releases uh, information about their point of view or what they're doing, said that they're uh, reconsidering their attitude about defending people who uh, carry loaded guns in support of their free speech rights. No, I didn't see that, but I'm very glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's something. And you know, you're you're so right. I mean, if these uh, if these Nazis and white supremacists were in charge of anything officially, nobody would be allowed to say a word. And if they did, they'd probably be locked up or shot. That's what the guns are for. You know. Hence my cynicism. <laughs> Well, let, let me, let, let me uh, apropos of everything we've been talking about here is, I'll try to make this brief. Uh, I belong, or I'm on the mailing list of a place called the Civil War Trust. And they're the people, by the way, who are primarily responsible for preserving Civil War battlefields all over the place, right? As preserving yeah. our history. Okay. So they sent out a recent uh, communication, <laughs> and um, they, uh, they're preserving the, battle of, uh, the battlefield of Gettysburg, you know, the essential battlefield or the most famous one in the, uh, in the Civil War. And um, they, say, uh, they say here that they're, I'll paraphrase and speed it up. Uh, people know um, uh, something about the, this battle or they know a little bit about it, but their children don't know very much at all. And it says here they're going to have something in September, on September 2nd. Instill a lifelong passion for history by bringing your son, daughter, niece, nephew, neighbor, or friend to Gettysburg as we walk in the footsteps of thousands of Civil War soldiers at our 15th generation event on September 2nd. And it says here, choose your side. Get in line and march in the footsteps of your ancestors on the very ground where countless dramatic events transpired. But dramatic events is kind of papering over what actually happened there. People got murdered. Yeah. Yeah. And then listen to this. Most kids will get a chance to don the uniforms of their choice. So context, mm-hmm. where is the context here? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's yeah, I know. extraordinary. It's really disturbing. It's, it's, I'm sure that you share my revulsion at the thought of, of little Johnny thinking, oh, cool, I'm going to be a Confederate. Give me the great uniform. Yay. Well, you know, I mean, well, why if would we want to act like there's something, you know, fun and grand about that? Well, if he's brought up in a culture for countless generations and brought up in a place down south and actually taught in school in history classes, you know, a lot of the history, history texts of the United States are, are written and published in Texas for reasons I don't really understand. But the largest textbook, school textbook firms are in Texas, including history textbooks. And there's been a lot of debate and, and problems down there about that. And local school boards and local schools control um, the teaching of history. Uh, and down south, you can imagine what that's like. So little Johnny or little Debbie, you know, now that it's equal rights for everybody can get to march and uh, shoot people. Um, are they, you know, they are, they are taught from early childhood about the glory of the south. And this, so this is not something, um, getting rid of statues isn't going to affect that. Um, your comments are evoking another big debate that's been raging, including this week, and that's this whole myth of um, every issue having two sides. Oh, man. And that drives me nuts. I don't, 
it's driving me nuts, too. And um, we see it over and over again. As you know, I write about religion, and I keep hearing about this idea that, well, evolution, you know, there's two sides to that. Uh. School kids (laughs) should get both sides of it, and they can, you know, decide for themselves. Or maybe with the Civil War, there's two, like, legit sides, and let Debbie and Johnny hear both, and they'll decide which one they like better. And there's a lot of people who are fed up right now with the myth of two sides when, you know, in many, many instances, there ain't two sides, or there certainly aren't two legit sides. We're not going to debate whether the Apollo moon landing really happened or whether it was a conspiracy theory or whether black people deserve equal rights. Some of these things are resolved, and there is no two sides to debate anymore. And on the progressive side, there's a lot of frustration right now because these things are coming up that we think have been resolved. Maybe we were too impatient or too quick to conclude that the battle was won. Oh, yeah. The, the idea the idea of uh, people uh, you know, understanding what's right and wrong. I mean, here you have a president, now we're back to him, who is actively supporting these people. I mean, he's been going back and forth, and people have been pushing him, say the right thing, do the right thing. He tries to do it, then he loses his temper, and then he says what he really feels. What as, he really feels, right. As much as he feels anything, or as much as he thinks anything, I mean, there's always a choice with him. Is he crazy or is he stupid? I mean, you don't... Re- <laughs> You don't really know. I mean, really, you don't know with him, you know. I mean, he says he's talking to reporters and out of nowhere, he says, you know, I have a house down in Charlottesville. He doesn't. He owns a winery, you know, somewhere outside the outskirts of Charlotte. You know, so who knows whether it's right or wrong. But this this equivalency, and he's talking about the alt-left. There is no alt-left, you know. And today, and this issue I know is driving you nuts, it's driving me nuts too. And today I saw something in the New York Times, which I read, on the front page, they did something where their editors allowed something to appear on the front page, which was really depressing and really upsetting. They have a big article on the front page today in the New York Times uh, explaining how there are um, uh, violent organizations on the left that are loosely aligned and there's pictures of them and everything and quotes from them. Why they chose to put that on there, because that just completely fuels and justifies this idea of an equivalency. And the Times has been going on and on and on about fake moral equivalencies. Then they put this article on the front page. I'm mystified. I don't get it. You yeah, know? they were probably talking about the so-called Antifa or the That's Antifa, right. if, if I'm pronouncing it right. The anti-fascists, yeah. Yeah, I'm really fascinated with that group, and I've been trying to read up on them this week. And one reason I'm fascinated is that I attended... Um, a rally on Sunday night on the New Haven Green in response to Charlottesville. And um, Antifa were there off on one side, and they had masks on and stuff. And I was, I've been really thinking about them a lot. You know, I'm somebody who's nonviolent mm-hmm. on principle, but not 100%. But so well, general, what does that, what, what does that violence mean? violence as a tactic. And here's the um, Antifa. I mean, it seems like they're, they're on the right side, quote-unquote, in terms of opposing the Nazis and the white supremacists, but they're willing, willing to um, resort to violence. I don't think they're willing to initiate it, mm-hmm. but that's something that I'm running through my mind this week as somebody who's opposed to violence. Well, you said, and, you, um, you you know, said I, I'm acknowledging that I have a lot of respect for, for where they are and for who they're opposing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But when you, say, when you said you're not 100% uh, opposed to violence, what, what percentage is it and what are you talking about? Well, maybe one or two percent. Like, I've... I've run these scenarios through my head, like, what would I do if, you know, my wife or daughter were Ah. attacked Mm -hmm. and violence was the only means by which I could uh, prevent it? Or what if I was attacked? Mm -hmm. And I've acknowledged that, you know, I'd probably do what I have to do, even though I've never had that situation and I've never 
engage in that kind of violence. And so I try to maintain a somewhat humble uh, position there, even though I'm someone who's almost 100 percent um, pacifist. What uh, now? There, there, I wanted to uh, so expand this just a little bit. I hope you have a couple more minutes because I want. There's so much to talk about here, right? And, Definitely. Um, uh, you're listening to Tom Crottenmaker, who is uh, a writer specializing in religion and public life. Uh, he is. Is it the communications director or in the communications department at Yale University? Yeah, Nick. I'm a communications director at the Divinity School at Yale University. But you're representing yourself today, not... I'm representing myself. Okay. And um, uh, Tom, also, in addition to writing columns for USA Today, he is the author of three books, uh, and most recently, the uh, 216 release, Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower. And um, he is uh, speaking with us today uh, from, uh, I suppose, are you up in Connecticut? Yep, speaking to you from my office on the campus of Yale in New Haven. Speaking of uh, the campus of Yale, there's something you mentioned in your article, uh, which I forgot to uh, talk about, and you talk about uh, changing the name. Is it of a dormitory, or or, uh, what is it up there that happened? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, and I learned a lot from um, the episode that the university um, has gone through the past three or four years, and that has to do with um, the residential college, uh, that was named for John C. Calhoun. Just so you know, uh, Mike, the residential colleges are basically dormitories here, mm-hmm. but that kind of um, undersells them to call them dormitories because they're sort of communities within the larger community, and undergraduates belong to one or the other, and it's a big part of their experience at Yale. And they're actually quite impressive and beautiful, and they have their own dining halls and libraries and and so on. And um, until recently, I believe there were 14, and now as of this year, they're going to be 16. But one of them was named for John C. Calhoun, and can you, who sense, was a major, yeah. who was, um, I believe, a senator from, I think, South Carolina, mm-hmm. a major promoter and defender of slavery back in the first part of the um, 1800s, the first half of the 1800s. And um, he, it was his name adorning one of the residential colleges. Did he? Did he? And over... Re- I'm sorry, did he go to Yale? Did he? I believe he? He's a, he was a Yale alum, right. Okay. And so um, over recent years, there was growing awareness of Calhoun's role in the nation's history as somebody who um, was not merely a product of his times when it came to slavery, but who was a shaper of his times, right. who was a very passionate leader in this hideous idea that slavery was, slavery was good and justified, that blacks were inferior, in fact, he was a creator of some of the major justifications for it, as if there was any justification for of it. Mm-hmm. For it, and so this increasingly became an object of pain and controversy at Yale. And um, the university decided to stick with it during a few of the decision-making periods. But then the uh, president, um, in my opinion, did something um, really wise in the past uh, year or so. He created a committee to look not at that issue per se but to develop guidelines and criteria to guide a proper decision on that matter, as well as similar matters that are bound to keep coming up in the future. Like, how do you decide, to put it in very simple terms? Mm. So, so what has happened with that, with that uh, the name of the, uh, of the residential? Um, and so when the committee came out with its report about some good and wise principles to look at in deciding these things, then the university saw that there was good cause to throw out that name of Calhoun, on their residential college, and they renamed it 
And um, beginning this year, it's going to be named Hopper for um, a woman astronaut and scientist. Mm-hmm. So the Calhoun name is out. Well, I think and uh, what's equally interesting about that is um, what are the good criteria and guidelines to look at when we're thinking about um, how Yale names things? But I would extend it. Like, you could apply it to whether we keep or at least contextualize Civil War monuments. You know, what do you go on? What does it look like to preserve history as opposed to glorifying people and so forth? Wait, let, let, me, uh, let me ask you this question, since you're mentioning that. Uh, this is connected to that. Uh, you know, our morally and intellectually compromised fool of a president said the other day that, the, we, you know, and this is something that's occurred to a lot of people, so it's not just him. He just blurts things out, you know. Uh, where do you stop with this, he says. What about Washington, oh, who owns slaves? What about I Jefferson, who owns slaves? This is a question that troubles some people. You know, are you go- where do you stop with that? I mean, they were slave owners. They were slave holders. They defended slavery. Um, and Andrew Jackson was the worst of the bunch, and including murdering Indians, you know. So there are statues of these people all over the place. What is the criterion here? I don't, not that... Um Trump was doing anything intellectually rigorous or morally rigorous. I mean, as you say, he just blurts things out. But um, just setting Donald Trump aside, there are legitimate questions people could ask, like, where do you draw the line? Well, I think it's pretty clear to me that there's a very clear line between taking down a statue of, say, Jefferson Davis or Robert E. Lee on one hand and George Washington on the other hand. And um, there have been a couple of good articles that have come out about it this week. And well, where do, what is the line? I mean, should there be context with George Washington? If there's a, I mean, there, there are thousands of statues of George Washington, uh, Washington, D.C., Washington this, Washington that. Well, well, I would say there's a hell of a big difference between George Washington on one hand and Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson. But that's the point. Do, do you con- on the other hand, and so you are bringing up Trump's question, where does it end? Well, you draw lines. I mean, a slippery slope is only a problem to the extent that you let things slide down it. Mm. And so I think that as a society, we're always progressing morally, and we draw new lines, and we parse things out, and we make distinctions. And to me, it's pretty clear how you can make distinctions in this case, even while acknowledging that there is a complicated history with somebody like Thomas Jefferson or George Washington. And yes, they own slaves, but we can also see mitigating factors that make them very different from um, Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson or John C. Calhoun. Yes, I agree with you completely, of course. But would this apply, would this be, uh, would this be part of your contextualizing things? In other words, um, yes. ne- near where I live, there is a place called Fort Tryon Park. And Washington and his uh, retreating army fought uh, several battles uh, in New York City and Brooklyn and um, uh, Brooklyn part of New York City now, and, um, you know, up along the Hudson, and there are plaques and there are statues and memorials. Should they have in context, or should there be, if there's a equestrian statue of Washington or a plaque of Washington, the great hero of the American Revolution and our first president, should it have that information on it, too? You got me on that one. That's a really tough question. I mean, somebody could argue that What's being commemorated there was not about slavery or anything like that. It was about the Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. But then somebody else could argue that, yeah, but when the country was created, they, they had slavery, and it was part of you know, what the United States was built on. So that's complicated. And so, Mike, I'm one of these people who will acknowledge in some cases that I don't know, and I'm not going to blurt something out like somebody else we know. <laughs> 
All right, good. I'm and glad so to hear I'm it. I'm going to think about that, though. You got me on that one. What's your take? I feel the same way you do. I think this takes a lot of thinking, and it's not because I'm retreating in some sort of uh, passive liberal way. It's because I think it really is something to think about. You know what I mean? These people, you have to acknowledge our history. You have to acknowledge all of our history. This country has a terrible history, no matter how heroic anybody was, when it comes to the American Indians and it comes to slavery. And uh, it's something that should be acknowledged. And uh, if I was taught much more about that in high school and college, I would have appreciated it, you know? That's what I think initially, and I think I have to think more about it. You know what? I'm um, sort of near the end. (laughs) We're approaching the end of the program here, and um, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation. Um, Thank you very much. It's been uh, really enjoyable breaking these things down with you. Um, where can people? Uh, where can people get? In? First of all, let me let me uh, say that this is Tom Crottenmeyer, and uh, I'm sorry, Crottenmaker. I keep getting this wrong. I, I really apologize. Hey, it's a long name. Everybody gets it wrong. Well, people always say my name wrong too. It's Fader, but it's F E D E R, so it's been Fetter my whole life. But uh, where can people read what you write or get in touch with you? Um, you know, in any way. It's easy. Um, people can go to TomCrottenmaker.com. Crottenmaker, I know it's a long name, but it's K-R-A-T-T, et cetera, et cetera. Google will figure it out. Okay. And people can also, the, um, at my website, they can get information about my most recent book, Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower, and pretty much everything else I've, I've written. Well, you know, there's other things I'd like to talk to you about, especially about religion and uh, religion in public places and uh, the whole idea of hate speech, which, by the way, just to start it off, although we're not going to talk about it, maybe if you come on again, I don't like the idea of hate speech laws. So that could set us off, too, on another conversation. So, oh, yeah. yeah. We could have quite a conversation about that. Okay. Uh, so, Tom, thank you very much for, uh, for coming on today. And uh, maybe uh, we'll talk to you again about a lot of these issues. And God forbid, I hope it just doesn't get worse, but uh, with this uh, lunatic in the White House uh, feeding, you know, fuel to these Nazis and supremacists, who knows what's going to happen. Maybe the Republicans will get a spine and remove this guy for being deranged in their own party. Yeah, maybe this will force the country to uh, rise to the occasion and do the right thing. But it's been great talking with you. Thanks so much, and thanks for the good work you do. Okay, thank you. Um, This is Mike Fader, and this is The Turning Point, and uh, we... uh, have been uh, discussing what's happening in Charlottesville, what happened, what's happening, what continues to happen. And uh, there is all these things, what happened in Barcelona, all these things are linked. Uh, and it's a sad, hard time. And people need to come out and do the right thing. People need to try to speak up for whatever they can. And people are doing that. Um, to see these, uh, these Nazis and white supremacists uh, you know, talking, yelling about Jews and carrying swastikas and carrying loaded guns... So something this involves also this whole crap, this whole nonsense about the Second Amendment freedom of speech. There's no freedom of speech to carry loaded guns in public places, as far as I'm concerned. Anyhow, that's uh, that's all for right now. And um, if you want to find out more about what I do or who I am, go to my website, FaderFiles, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S.com, FaderFiles.com. You can get on my mailing list and get in touch with me and give me any opinions you have about what I said. Okay. Keep your Confederate money, even if it's made of tin. Keep all them crinolines, honey, the South shall rise again. No, Susanna, oh, don't you sit and spin. If we all turn out with a rebel 
see any difference between these two things all right uh, I will uh, talk to you again If you're by my side 